At Urban Farm Podcast, we are all about education, and April is Foliar Feeding Month. Have you heard of it? It is a super simple application of spraying liquid organic fertilizer on your trees and garden plants. The leaves, branches, and trunks are incredible at absorbing nutrients. And if your soil isn't great or your pH is off, foliar feeding is a quick and long-lasting fix to get your plants the nutrients they need. Want to learn more? Join us for our free online webinar on how to apply this amazing process to your gardens and fruit trees. Visit urbanfarm.org to sign up. That's urbanfarm.org. Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Farmer Greg here, and welcome to the 704th episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where every day we work together to educate and inspire you to become part of your food revolution. Today on our podcast, we have someone who is growing food while overcoming droughts, record rains, and floods. We're talking with Clara Rosa about conquering Australian-sized farming challenges. Clara is a 31-year-old amateur mycologist, mushroom grower, beekeeper, and chicken lady who is passionate about animals and the environment. She is Hungarian-Australian and currently living in Australia, where she is president of the local Permaculture Central Coast Group. Welcome to the show today, Clara. Are you ready to rock? Yeah, I am. I'm very excited to be here, Greg. I'm a huge fan of the podcast. So awesome. I'm well, so happy to find someone calling themselves an urban farmer because as soon as I saw those two words together, I was like, that's it. That's what I want to do. Nice. <laughs> so I shared a bit about you. Can you fill in the blanks for us and share more about the path you took to get where you're at today? Yeah, I'll uh, start like David Copperfield right at the <laughs> right at the start. A lot of my childhood was spent in my grandparents' homestead, I guess you would call it, on the Hungarian-Ukrainian border. So in his little, it was a village and it was a place where people still delivered milk and little milk bottles and there mm. was still horses that dragged carts. It was a bit like being back in time. But I absolutely loved everything about how they lived. Uh, it was beautiful. We used to pick apples. We used to make our own jam and we used to just find animals under trees and bring them home. However, the economic opportunities are not too great in that area. So my family decided to move to Australia and we moved to a really pleasant suburban existence. We live in a beautiful suburb on the central coast. A beautiful climate surrounded by absolutely gorgeous beaches, waterfalls. There's no snow. There's no frost. Your pipes don't freeze over. You nice. can wear thongs all year if you want to. Um, that's what we call, I think you guys call it flip-flops. But anyway, so yeah, we moved here and then I attended university in Sydney, kind of lived the city lifestyle there and was really happy when I was able to come back to the Central Coast, to the beaches, to the bush, and get a full-time job here. Since then, I've just been saving up for my own little patch to maybe try and have my cake and eat it too, maybe <laughs> the Australian lifestyle and a little bit of what my grandparents had back in Hungary. And it was tricky because I think you guys have got the same situation we do where house and land prices are eye-watering. So it was a lot of saving. And when I finally did scrounge together enough, even though I have quite a good job here, 
I had to buy something that was a dump covered in bamboo and lantanas are weed here. It was like the most awful bamboo, the one with runners, and it, it was just choking off everything. Mm. The soil was dust. It was depleted. The house, I was camping, essentially. I didn't have a kitchen for nine months. <laughs> it was, wow. So, yeah, it was pretty bad. But slowly but surely, with the help of uh, my many siblings and my dad, I've been fixing it up. And with the help of How long of ago my, was that? That was the end of 2018 that I purchased this place. Yeah. So you've been there five years? Almost. Yeah. Not quite. So we're getting to four, 2018. Yeah. So it'll be cool. four years at the end of the year. And yeah, it's been pretty great, actually. I think if I could do it all again, I would do the same thing. I wouldn't buy something that was perfect or beautiful or easy because there was just so much satisfaction in taking something that was so horrible and turning it into something that I really love. So yeah, and um, that led me to my local permaculture group. Soon as I walked in the doors there these ladies grabbed me and said look at our seed bank and I was just so shocked I was like so this is just a bank of seeds and I can just take the seeds and they were like yeah yeah of course and when you plant them you you let it go to seed and you bring some back I was like this is amazing and then they started handing me plants and I was like so these are just mine now and they were like yes these are cuttings you can have as many as you like and then when your plant grows big you can bring some cuttings in for everyone else. And it was nothing like anything else I'd really sort of been a part of before, even though I'd done community work. I did some charity work with our local cancer council. I'd been to university, but uh, this was just something different, I guess, a, um, a true sharing economy. Yeah. And, uh, well, and that's, that's what I've noticed for decades is how abundant nature is. There's this abundance that comes out of nature that especially when you're growing plants and trees and seeds and that kind of stuff, it's just, it's, it's almost overwhelming. Yeah. I, I can't think of anything else quite like it where people are just so happy to give and to share and it's so easy to give back and to share as well. And like you said, it's because food is kind of free once you learn <laughs> permaculture. It's actually... It is not. It is not kind of free. <laughs> yeah. It is free. That's it. So yeah, wow. it's, it's been great. It's been a fantastic journey, and now I've ended up in the president role. I was secretary for a while, and I'm just continuing to chug away at my place while also just recruiting as many new people into the fold as I can, and mm-hmm. it's been really lovely. Wow. So I have so many questions for you. The first one I want to dive into is. What did you do with all that bamboo? Because bamboo is an invasive, especially in a warmer climate. And you said it was everywhere. How did you come to grips with all of that bamboo? So the first people I went to for advice, because I'm on the edge of a national park, so I'm on the edge of the bush. And so the first people I went to were our local bush care group. And these were kind of a lot of older gentlemen who'd been, you know, working in the national parks for a long time. And they had suggested to me to cut it down with a lopper and then paint it with some poison. I was pretty skeptical about that. I didn't see how knowing the size of that root system that a little dash of poison would really do much at all. And I was Mm -hmm. obviously worried about what it could mean for 
any animals that went and then you know licked those branches so I abandoned that pretty quickly after a trial run I confirmed it's useless and I just kept hacking it down so a local arborist suggested to me that I just treat it like a game of golf I take some golf clubs out there and every time something pops up I just whack it with the golf clubs and whack it back down and that was what I ended up doing so I I cut it all down I had I've got bamboo stakes for the rest of my life so that's Uh fantastic never going to purchase a bamboo stake I used it to create garden beds to decorate things obviously just as classic tree stakes and all of the leafy material turned into mulch and for about two years I would just go out there every time it rained and I just cut it back and now we're approaching four years it's not a problem anymore wow well, one of the, so we had some bamboo that I acquired when I was in Phoenix and it was pretty big stuff, but I ran it through my chipper mulcher and it made great mulch as well. Yeah, the, the top part certainly did, but the, um, the bottom part, you know, that, that bamboo was, I think in like some Asian countries, they use it for scaffolding. You know, it's a, it was extremely oh thick and strong. So that was not going into any kind of chipper but it was perfect for making arches, for making garden beds. So I kept it all. It all got used. Yeah. Nice, nice, nice. And I always like, for my people in permaculture, I always like to ask the question, can you define permaculture for us? I guess it depends who I'm talking to. So if I'm talking to someone who's kind of permaculture naive, which probably isn't your audience, admittedly, but I like to say that it's a system of, design that mimics nature and natural patterns and rather than using our artificial means of doing things we're trying to mimic what a forest does and I think that's the easiest way for people to get their head around it mm-hmm. and one I, you probably get this too Greg but when people who don't who aren't a part of the permaculture community come over to your property and they see all the trees and all the plants and they first thing they say is oh this takes so much time and my reply to them is always, well, nobody gardens the forest. Right? Nobody goes in and rakes up the leaves in the forest. Exactly. Nobody mows the forest. It doesn't take any time at all. Yeah. Well, and, you know, we get, a, we get it so abundant that, you know, it just food grows, right? Yeah, that's it. That's what it wants to do. We're just letting it do what it wants to do and helping out a little bit. Yeah, exactly. Kind of direct it in the direction we want to go. Perfect. <laughs> So you said once you started listening to the Urban Farm podcast, the whole notion of of being an urban farmer occurred to you. And uh, before we started, I think you even said you didn't even know that existed. Tell me about that. Yeah, I love it. And um, I'm still having to defend it to my family who are used to traditional farms. And I remember Mm -hmm. because now I've got my own little logo that my friend designed for me says Clara's Urban Mini Farm, put it on little jars of honey and things like that. And my dad was like, oh, you're not trying to tell people this is a farm, are you? And I'm like, yes, that's exactly what I'm doing because (laughs) it is a farm. I am farming things. And just because it's teeny tiny doesn't mean I don't get to be a farmer. Nice. Well, and how teeny tiny is teeny tiny? So 750 meters squared. I don't know what that is in your measurements I'm sorry that's all right we'll Um, figure it out but uh, uh, less than a quarter of an acre well a quarter of an acre is what I had in 
Phoenix when I lived there at the urban farm. And I actually used to, when I was in college 20 years ago, I would farm the front and backyard part-time. I did it one or two days a week and harvest the stuff and take it to the market. And I, I was making some pretty good money back then doing yeah. that. So, you know, you can grow a lot of food on a small plot, right? Uh, that's it. And it depends on what you want your outputs to be. I mean, where I am is perfect place for bees. Bees love our climate. They love the bush. Currently, we're dealing with a varroa mite, mite outbreak, but we think we've got that under control, which means Australia is, I think, the only exporter of honey that doesn't have varroa mite. So our bees do extremely well. So you can produce a lot just by putting a few hives on a suburban property. No worries. Mm-hmm. They'll you- produce through winter. Oh, nice. And what do your neighbors think about that? They wouldn't know if I didn't put signs up everywhere, but I do because I don't want anyone spraying and I don't want anyone cutting down clovers or flowers. So I have signs around and I do tell people about them, but because it's around the back, they would never really know otherwise. Nice. And so you're actually raising bees, harvesting the honey, and then do you sell the honey? I do not only because I run a little Airbnb. So I kind of give the guests a bit of honey and my family eat a lot of honey. And then at work where I work at the hospital, everyone gets honey for Christmas. So by the time I do all of those things, it kind of adds up. Yeah. Um, But I could if I wanted to. And I've chosen to only have two hives just because it's easier for me because I do work full time. So Mm -hmm. I get a bit busy. So you're running an Airbnb? Yeah. At your little farm? That's it. Yeah. So I... Oh, nice. Tell me about that. So I retrofitted this property. So because I had to replace everything anyway, we basically just went underneath and where it was kind of an awkward space, turned that into a little flat, just a little kitchenette, bathroom, bedroom. And basically just to turn this sort of awkward single dwelling into a double dwelling. And I, at the moment, it's worked out best for me to rent that out on Airbnb. I'm next to two hospitals and quite a few and, you know, like uh, family areas. So, so far I've been attracting people who want to have a pet with them. So Mm -hmm. people with service animals, they find it really hard to kind of get into the beach resorts and things like that. And people with just small children who also don't want to be stuck in a little room. And uh, they're quite happy to pay to rent out that little area down there. And it's been going really well so far. So, and, and, but you bring them into the urban farm because you're giving them honey. So are, are you getting people that are engaging with you on your farm? Absolutely. Especially children. They're, um, they're extremely excited to see even just a chicken, you know, when the chicken comes out, you just hear this ex- excited, like scream of like, oh my God, chicken, chicken, chicken. And you see this, these little legs running around after them. And if I show everyone how the bees work, I explain to them a little bit about why it's not a good idea to spray and how important bees are. When they look out their window, they can see the bees overlooking the pond with the big bunch of bananas hanging over it at the moment. I wow. tell, tell everyone to help themselves to some eggs and lettuce. And at the moment, you know, in Sydney, you might pay something like $11 for a lettuce. So people are pretty excited to find out that it just grows. Right. <laughs> There's no need for that. Food just grows. Imagine yeah. that. 
Yeah. Wow. And you said something a minute ago. You said you went down under. Does that mean this was a basement space? Yeah. It was just an empty, nothing space where a lot of sort of plumbing and pipes were. So like the hot water heater was down there. So we moved that from down there, put it around the back and just made use of this empty space by digging out a little bit more and then concreting. And so actually, because it's dug out partially, it's also really well insulated in our hot summer. So nice. it's a really hot summer, I do kind of try and hang out down there because it stays a really nice, cool 22 degrees is Australian ground temperature. Nice. Nice. So if somebody wanted to find information about your Airbnb, where would they find it? Yeah, so I'm on Instagram and Facebook. Those are probably the easiest ways to see what I'm up to and get all the links. And it's just Clara's Urban Mini Farm on Facebook and Instagram. Great. We'll have that in the show notes. So you found your local permaculture group. Tell me about them and you know what difference they've made for you. Oh, it's, it's been just fantastic. They're just such an amazing group of people. And it's a really, it's a community group where it really attracts a wide diversity of people. So you, you find that if you're someone who sees a lot of community groups, often they tend to be pretty homogenous. You'll get, you know, older ladies often, or you'll get older men going into their groups. Mm-hmm. We have a really great angel age range at our group so it is usually people who are not students anymore it's usually you know 30s upwards but there are a few younger people and just a range of people families some people with acreages some people who live in small townhouses quite a few people that are just renting and it's just a really fantastic group of people who are interested in permaculture and we have a really wonderful couple of permaculture educators on the central coast so permacoach that's my friend Meg McGowan and then Kerry Anderson who has synergy permaculture she also actually runs small little introduction to permaculture classes through our council not sure what your equivalent would be in America it's sort of our lowest level of government Mm -hmm. yeah so they uh, often run things that are environmentally friendly or that would improve the neighborhood. They're happy to kind of help out with a few community grants. And so Kerry's been the recipient of a couple of those and she's done a few introduction to permaculture courses as well as things about composting and worm farming. So it's, yeah, it's been really fantastic and something I'm really excited about. I don't know if you guys do that over there but we've got I started in the Blue Mountains and now it's become quite popular in Sydney edible garden trails edible garden trails yeah so it's wow tell me about that it's the best thing ever (laughs) and it is literally just a bunch of people growing food in their backyards so typically community gardens are involved, but it's not typically farms or market gardens. It's usually suburban households who mm-hmm. have edible gardens and you go on a big list and you get that list after you pay a little bit of a fee and you literally go around to all these different people's houses and find out how they're growing food. And it's really amazing the different variety you get also because we're a very big migrant city. Mm, right. So you'll see people, you'll see a lot of Greeks and Italians with their tomato and their basil and their fig tree. Uh, Then you'll go see someone from the Philippines who'll have their bananas and their 
interesting different eggplants and different types of greens that I've never heard of before and it's and then you'll go see some Pacific Islanders who've got a backyard full of taro and more different types of banana and it's yeah it's fantastic day so we're going to do that on the central coast now as well this year for the first time so our permaculture group's organizing that so the lovely Sandy and Anna are going to be organizing that for us and I'm just so excited about it. Awesome. And you talk about mushroom mycology. Tell me about that. Yeah, it's it's something that I didn't actually get into through permaculture. It's interesting. It was honestly back when I was living in my unit. So before I'd bought this property, before I'd met the permaculture group, I was just growing what I could on a balcony and in my unit. So I had actually created my own little hydroponic setup that used to sit next to my fridge for all my lettuces and my basils and my greens. And I kind of cobbled that together out of things from like Kmart and bunnies and on the street. And it was, it was a little bit interesting, but actually pretty productive. And so the next step onto that was what else can I do? And I saw this news report about a young girl in Africa And of course, in Africa, it's very hard to find high quality, nutrient dense food that you can produce yourself because a lot of them are living in fairly poor kind of households. There's not Mm -hmm. a lot of space. People are often sleeping for in a room. It's often dark. There's not a lot of arable soil and you don't tend to keep things outside. So this young lady had come up with the idea of people growing their own mushrooms And she was going around to all the cafes and picking up waste items like coffee grounds. And she was using just that to produce this incredibly healthy, nutrient-dense food out of what was essentially garbage in what was essentially the worst conditions you can imagine. And I was just, as soon as I saw that, I was like, that's amazing. Everyone should be doing that. Why isn't everyone doing that? (laughs) So that sent me down this rabbit hole. I discovered Paul Stamets and started listening to a few podcasts, watching a few of his videos, ordered a few of his books, and I'm now just a big mushroom fan, I guess. Wow. I've met up with a few other mushroom people, and we host little events. I host a few workshops, and I've managed to convert quite a few people into being mushroom fans as well. Well, and they're pretty straightforward to grow, aren't they? Extremely straightforward, yeah, from, from garbage. I've often thrown out a challenge to people to say, what, find me something that's easier to grow in the worst conditions possible. Find me something else I can grow, you know, under my sink. Uh-huh. <laughs> you, you won't find anything else. They don't need a lot of light. They need a bit of water. But once you've hydrated your medium, that's it. You're done. You don't need to continuously water them. You just let them grow. Wow. What's your favorite thing to grow? Mushrooms. it's got to be mushrooms yeah and uh, oyster mushrooms they just nothing beats their reliability how quick they are how much food you get how good they taste how good they are for you it's just fantastic that you look at these little pinheads one day and you know at the end of the week you're going to have an entire bowl of mushrooms and your only input was a little bit of mycelium and I use shredded paper wow how cool how cool is that yeah i recently moved 3000 kilometers 1900 miles from phoenix to asheville north carolina and asheville north carolina is in 
a bit of a rainforest. And as I was walking my property the other day, I found at least a half a dozen different kinds of mushrooms that were popping up all over the place. It's like, wow, nothing, nothing we see in Phoenix. Once you start to go down the mushroom rabbit hole and you start learning about mycelium and their, their interconnectivity with trees and their interconnectivity with each other and their different languages and how they've evolved, uh, it's, a, it's a long journey down that rabbit hole. So <laughs> it's a worthwhile one, though, for sure. And start with Paul Stamets, definitely. Right. Paul Stamets is definitely the rock star out there doing the work. One of the things that I'm impressed with about you and having our conversation today in the last 25 minutes <laughs> is you just take on and go for it. Yes. Yeah, I'm not a procrastinator. Whatever is the opposite of a procrastinator, that's me. I'm a doer. I see something and I just, I'm like, that's it. I want to do that. I'm going to go do that. I'm going to go do it now. Congratulations. That's <laughs> how that's how stuff gets done. My One of my permaculture teachers, Larry Santoyo, used to tell me, Greg, go out in the world and do epic sh stuff. <laughs> I don't you know? think it has to be epic. I think just do whatever makes you happy in that moment and worry about it when you're dead. Uh, there you go. Well, and see, for me, that's what epic is. Epic, you know, epic can be whatever your epic is. Yeah, I always say to people, if you're going to take the time to sit down and think about reasons not to do something, you'll find them. Like, you will. <laughs> it's, not, right? it's not hard to find a reason not to do something. But yeah. if you just go ahead and do it, then you're going to find out that it was actually worth it anyway. Awesome. So I'm going to shift on you, and I'd like for you to talk about a time you failed, how you overcame that failure, and what you learned from it. So I failed because I grossly underestimated the eating capacity of an Australian swamp wallaby, swampies as we like to call them. I thought to myself, surely I can put citrus trees out here. Surely these West Indian limes with thorns the size of my fingers are safe to put out without any kind of guard. Surely these pungent herbs that are nothing like the Australian native foods will not be damaged. And I was wrong, great guy. I walked out one day and I found that these wallabies had put their little mouths onto the trunk of my citrus trees and just ran their mouth along them. Wow. They took out my entire garden in one night. It was pretty incredible. Aww. I didn't have time to be mad. I was just impressed. I was just impressed at their ability to eat. And I had no idea about that. I know now. I know now that anything that I love, I must protect from the wallabies and that I should offer them sacrifices and treats. And I have now got a detente with my wallaby friends and we can coexist together, but it was definitely a learning curve. Wow. So what is a wallaby? Um... It's a little kangaroo, little fat kangaroo. Ah, yeah, that's kind of what they look like is a kangaroo. They're very cute. They're incredibly cute, but they're incredibly destructive. So what did you do to fix the problem? So I just had to put tree guards on, on all my trees until they reach two meters. Mm -hmm. So when you look at how to prune trees, I have to throw all of that out. I don't do any of this pruning so that it's easy for me to pick. I prune everything into tall martini glass so that the wallaby ah. can't get to it. 
and I just have to, you know, use a step stool or a ladder or work around it and everything has to be fenced and you have to have other things for them to eat so that they are not tempted to break down your fences because they can get pretty fat. Wow. Well, and I love how in permaculture, you know, we're basically making, figuring the problem is the solution. And that's what you've done here. Yes. And now we're friends. We're frenemies. So that's worked (laughs) out really well. And they are very, very cute. Nice. How big do they get? You'll be able to see some photos on my Instagram. They vary. I think they're usually about 1.5 meters tall. So about four feet. Yeah, so the the boys can get quite uh, muscular as well. Some of them have got some nice big arms on them. And sometimes the ladies get nice and chubby and they've got a little joey in their pouch. Uh And sometimes they stay very quite small and slender. So it just depends on the environment. And this is in an urban area. Yeah, so urban fringe. So in Australia, we're pretty good at keeping a lot of our national parks around the urban fringe. Mm-hmm. So you will find a lot of suburban places that are very close to the bush. So that's one of the reasons why bushfire season hits us so hard is because we are always not too far away from beautiful bush and trees. With that comes danger. But it's something that we've learned to live with. And I don't think it's something that anybody wants to change. It is beautiful to be close to the gum trees and the nature. And we just sort of got to work it out together. Nice. And what do you consider your biggest success? I don't think I have any one biggest success. I There's nothing that I can really point to and say that's, a, that, that's the best one. I think I've always been someone who just sets myself one humble goal after the other. And I'm happy with how that has been going. Happy I graduated and got a job where I go to work every day and I help people. I'm happy that I chose this challenging block and that I've given back a little bit to the environment. Happy that I'm able to continue to give back to the environment through whatever groups I take part in. And I'm happy now that I get to share that with a whole bunch of like-minded people. So every day is kind of a new success, which sounds a bit braggy, but it kind of is. I was going to say that all sounds pretty epic. And what drives you? I've always been someone who loves to learn. And I'm so blessed and lucky that I grew up in the information age. Mm -hmm. I, I think about that all the time, just how happy I am about the internet, how happy that it can connect me with people like you and other people on the other side of the country or the huge amount of information that I have access to. I often think if I was born in another time, even though I'm not religious, I probably would have had to join a monastery just so that I could get the books. (laughs) (laughs) I just had to fake it because, you know, that's what you had to do back then to have access to that kind of knowledge. There were gatekeepers. And yeah, I just think I'm so incredibly lucky to have all of this knowledge at my fingertips. And I just dive in after it head first. Nice. And if you could recommend one book talking about books for our listeners, what would it be and why? Well, it would be what you're interested in. So if you're interested in permaculture, I have, I put it next to me so I wouldn't mispronounce their names. The Milkwood book by Kristen Bradley and Nick Ritter. 
So Milkwood Permaculture, they're an Australian couple. If you haven't checked them out, please do. They are amazing. They're so fantastic. And their did book you say, is fantastic. Did you say Milkwood? That's it. It's one word, Milkwood. Oh, nice. Yeah, so they're amazing. And if you're interested in mushrooms, like I said, anything by Paul Stamets, you won't be disappointed. Amen to that. And what one final piece of advice do you have for our listeners? Never stop learning. You've got no excuse. You've got so much information out there. You should get up every day and learn something new. Otherwise, you know, you're, you're wasting all of these things that other people have put out there for you. Gotta love that. Gotta love that. That's part of why I like interviewing people like you on the podcast is because every time I do, I get to learn something new. That's it. And that's why I love listening to podcasts. Always when I'm out in the garden, I'm going for a walk, I pick a different podcast. And sometimes it's podcasts that I love about things that I know about. And sometimes I just pick something completely random that I don't care about, like economics, and I'll just play that and I'll learn something new. And I just think it's good for you. Nice, nice, nice. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the show today, Clara. Thank you for having me. It's been lovely. So how can our listeners find you? So yeah, Instagram and Facebook are the easiest. So Clara's Urban Mini Farm on both. And I post to both on my, I do have a YouTube page as well for anyone who likes videos, but there's not much on there. If you want to learn how to make up your own oyster mushroom kits, the Facebook page pinned right to the top there, that's got a lot of information as well as a video where I take you by, take you through step-by-step how to make your own little oyster mushroom bucket that you can put in your kitchen. Whoa, I want to know that. Yeah, so that's on Clara's Urban Mini Farm Facebook page. Very good. And you can also find show notes from today's podcast at urbanfarm.org forward slash Clara. That's C-L-A-R-A. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. One of the first things that many of us learn when we start to garden is how to water and fertilize the soil. But there is an exception to this rule and it's called foliar feeding. You should foliar feed or water the leaves of your plant with liquid fertilizer when you want certain nutrients to be absorbed better. Not only are the leaves great at uptaking liquid fertilizer, if your soil isn't very good or your pH is off, foliar feeding can help your veggies and fruit trees quickly get the nutrients they need to thrive. If you're ready to start foliar feeding for maximum growth yields and quality, Head on over to urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves to see our selection of foliar feeding products. That's urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves.